Well, thank, thanks very much, Audrey, and thanks for the opportunity to present some of our work to you today. So you've seen up here on the, the slide, the talk is divided into four parts. I'm going to, first of all, describe to you about the causes and the mechanisms of heart disease. Uh, then I imagine there's plenty of people in the audience who are not from a genetic background, so I'll tell you what a gene is or remind you and, and how it works. And then what is this SNP thing? You'll, you'll find out at, at, by the end. And then can we use DNA tests to identify patients? So, so if you like, the, 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 the topic of the talk is genetic testing for risk of heart disease. Are we talking fact or are we talking fiction? A uh, number of people in my group, uh, only some of whom are, are mentioned up here, who've contributed to the work. And the work is funded almost entirely uh, over the last uh, 25 years by the British Heart Foundation. So I'll be giving them quite a few plugs as we go through the talk. So, what are the common risk factors for heart disease? Someone give me some ideas, please. Blood pressure. Yep, high blood pressure, very bad for you, yep. Obesity. Obesity, yes. Family history. Family history, yes, that's of course the important one we can talk about today, yeah. Smoking. Smoking, very bad, terrible. No one here smokes, I'm sure, yeah. Anything else? Yes, there's, in the lay press there's, there's bad cholesterol, which is... Um, which, from a clinical point of view, is called low density, or LDL, uh, LDL cholesterol. And there's good cholesterol, uh, which is called high-density lip uh, high lipoprotein. So good and bad, bad cholesterol. But yes, having high levels of, of lipids is a problem. Anything else? Yep, lack of exercise. You've missed the two big ones. Yes and no, that's not one of the big ones. What are the two big ones? Yep, that's on the list. Yep, are you right? Diet, healthy diet's important, but what am I? Major risk factor. And what am I, as opposed to most of the students in the audience? Age. So, these are the, these are the list, these are the main ones, you've got almost all of them, well done. <clears throat> now, some are modifiable, and some are not. Some have got a very strong genetic contribution, and some are mostly environmental. Most of these risk factors have got bits of genes and bits of environment in them. So, okay, so let's talk about what are the processes of, of heart disease. Uh, in some of the slides, you'll see it as CHD, an abbreviation, coronary heart disease. So it, it means the, the arteries in the, in the heart are, are, are diseased. You may have seen a couple of years ago this, this very um, a challenging advert by the British Heart Foundation. For every cigarette we smoke makes fatty deposits stick in our arteries. So it's a very nice graphic. Uh, and that, of course, is, is, is one of the problems, and that's, that's both genes and environment. So here we've got an artery, uh, maybe a, quite a young man, a young man or woman, opened up post-mortem along its length. And what you can see here is there are these little yellow streaks. They're called fatty streaks. They've got fat in them. You can see they're, they're uh, orientated in the direction of the blood flow. They seem to be very much downstream with the branches, that's a little blood vessel going off. These are the very first uh, signs of atherosclerosis. You can find these uh, in, in young people in their teens or their 20s. And what we hope is, and what we know is, that if you lower your cholesterol, you can get rid of these. They, they, but they are the precursors of this. This is an artery uh, for maybe a 50-year-old taken at post-mortem and now cut across. 
You can see, interestingly, this part of the artery wall is, is fine. It looks nice and thin. And what you've got here is a big cholesterol-laden plaque, an atherosclerotic plaque, that's, more, that's blocking at least half of the, uh, of the lumen here. That's an advanced lesion. Uh, and this is what something looks really bad. This is a, a genetic disease that we do a lot of work on called familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, it's a 45-year-old smoker. The whole uh, of the artery from this individual just completely stuffed with this, with this cholesterol. Obviously, bad news. Here's, um, again, cut in section, an intact advanced lesion. Again, part of the blood vessel looks fine. Here is the plaque here. There's some, the, the, here, the, it's no longer cellular. The cholesterol has killed the cells, and they've died. So there's a, a, what's called a necrotic core. But there's lots of muscle cells. There's lots of smooth muscle cells, endothelial cells, keeping this happy. This one's not a problem yet. But when, if you were to open that up, you'd see this sort of thing, a bit like a fried egg. Uh, some, maybe some, um, some blood clotting has gone on here. You can see it's sort of ulcerated. There's little holes. It's leading to trouble. It, it's not looking clever. And this is what happens when one of these lesions ruptures. You get a clot. This, again, in section, this is a, mainly a, a platelet-rich clot uh, covered with, uh, with protein, the fibrin that's made, made the fibers that forms the clot. And if you were to open that up, that's what you'd see. So here you've got an atherosclerotic lesion, a bit like this. It's ruptured, and this clot has formed an, uh, on top and, and, and blocked the blood flow. Now, you can see atherosclerosis in the arteries in the heart using, uh, of a living person using a technique called, called uh, angiography. An X-ray opaque dye is injected into the bloodstream via a catheter. Uh, and what you can see here, and then you take a series of X-rays, X-ray pictures, you can see that some of these blood vessels are really nice. Their blood flow is going through very happily, and others are looking really bad. This lesion looks, looks pretty terrible. There's almost no blood getting through there at all. And of course, the, the, the problem is when that happens, um, if, it, if, the, if the blockage is complete, the clot completely uh, prevents oxygen flowing, then uh, no oxygen will get through, uh, and that tissue will die. Uh, and that's what causes a, a heart attack. So what you've got to think of is that uh, heart disease is an ongoing process. So we're born with very nice clean arteries here in the 20s or 30s. We get the fatty streaks leading to this sort of thing. And this is clinically silent. No one knows they've got this. Maybe by the 50s or so, people might get chest pain when they run for a bus. In other words, there's enough blood and oxygen flowing when they're sitting down not doing anything. There's no demand. But when the heart needs to pump more, there's not enough oxygen getting through and you get, you get chest pains. A big sign, go to your doctor, try to, try to see what's going on. Then you get the plaque rupture, the clot forms, and you get a heart attack. And then this is the, the Heart Foundation uh, campaign. The main problem with people dying from heart disease that, that we can fix is not calling 999 early enough. Oh, I've got angina. No, you're not. You're dying. And so when you get this, or when your husband or uh, someone else starts feeling this crushing chest pain, which, which is, is visualized by this very nice poster, call, call the ambulance quick, take an aspirin, uh, get to hospital as quick as you can. So understanding this gives us uh, some clues about the genes that we should be thinking about uh, when we're trying to work out a genetic test. Thing to remember is that heart disease risk is multifactorial, as we already showed in the early slide. So what you've got is that some people, by luck, have inherited very few risk-raising genes, risk-raising alleles, and others have inherited a lot, cholesterol genes, blood pressure genes, clotting genes, things like this. 
But equally, we inherit different environments. Some of us choose to maintain a healthy environment and others don't, um, and by all these, these sorts of things that we discussed. But really, heart risk, the risk of early heart disease only occurs when you've got a bit of both. Uh, it's this overlap of when you've got a, a number of high-risk genes, a number of high-risk environments. And the thing to remember is that nature loads the gun and nurture pulls the trigger. You have to have both to get an explosion, which in this case is the heart attack. So the research that we're doing is to try to find the genes involved, the way they interact with each other and with diet, and then to use this for patient benefit. Okay, so if we're going to try to develop a genetic test, what are the criteria we need to set out before we do this? It's got to be predictive over and above the established risk factors that we talked about earlier. It's clearly got to take environmental interactions into account. It may be that a particular risk gene is only important if you smoke. It doesn't matter if you don't smoke. It's only important if you're got high blood pressure. So that's really quite important. Clearly it's got to be accurate and not to be associated with negative psychological impact. Uh, and if I've got time at the end, I'll, I'll come to that question. Okay, but why are these predictive tests going to be useful? Well, in the UK, uh, if an individual has a more than 20% risk of developing heart disease over the next 10 years, NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Health and Excellence, says you can give them a statin. Who is currently taking a statin in the audience? At least half a dozen people. Oh, good, excellent, well done. And what are the statins doing? Why, why are you taking it? To lower the LDL cholesterol, to lower the bad cholesterol. And they do it very well. They lower LDL cholesterol and they lower heart disease. Wonderful. Uh, but they cost money. And clearly, you, could, you want to give it to the people who are going to benefit most. So here's a typical UK punter. You can see his age, his LDL, cholesterol, HDL, blood pressure. He's a smoker. He has a family history. If we stick that into a risk algorithm, which the government says we should use, his 10-year risk comes out at 21%. So, he, right, no problems. The doctor doesn't have a problem. Give him a statin. Here's his colleague at work. Uh, he maybe goes to the gym a couple of times a week. You can see he's not overweight. His lipid profile's a bit better. But he's got his smoker, blood pressure, family history. You put that into the algorithm. His 10-year risk is only 18%. You tell him to stop smoking. You, you're not really officially allowed to give him a statin. Now, it may be that this man here has actually inherited lots of the bad risk alleles. His genetic makeup is, is, means his risk is much higher than this individual. So what we really want to do is try to work out tests that would allow us to distinguish people who are at this intermediate risk into those who are genetically high or genetically low risk. So how do we currently estimate an individual's risk? There are a number of algorithms that are used very widely. There's one called Procan, one called Framingham, there's one called QRisk, there's one called SCORE. They all basically work the same way. Just, just focus here on this Framingham one. So they stratify by a risk factor and give you points for higher blood pressure, whether you smoke, whether your HDL is low, whether your LDL is low, whether you've got diabetes. And in this case, points don't mean prizes. Points mean risk of heart disease. So what you can do if you took a large group of men, the distribution of their risk would look like this, and their, uh, their distribution of score would look like this, and their risk would go up, something like that. So let's see how it works. This is a study that we've done a lot of work on. It's just over 3,000 healthy middle-aged men recruited from nine general practices throughout the UK. They were all free of heart disease on entry. Uh, and then in the first 10 years, 200 of these individuals had an event. 
These are the baseline characteristics, and if you look at the event group compared to the event-free, the ones who went on to have a heart attack were a bit older, a bit fatter, their blood pressure was a bit higher, their cholesterol was a bit higher, more of them smoked. So very much the sort of risk profile that, that you'd expect. Okay, so what percentage of the events that actually occurred do the risk algorithms predict? I'd like to be able to tell you that they pick up 60, 70, 80, 90%. They don't. This, in cartoon form, is the risk score distribution in those who didn't have an event. This, in red, is the, is the score in those who did. If we set a cutoff here so that we pick up a false positive of 5% of the men who don't have an event, we correctly identify 14% of those who did, which means we've missed 86% of the events that actually occur. It's a rotten test. It's the best we've got, and it's being used by doctors all over the place to decide if you're going to get a statin or not. In other words, these folks up here get a statin, and these don't. The problem is most events occur in people who've got average levels of risk. That's sort of by, by definition. So it looks like there's plenty of room to improve on this if we can find some useful individual genetic information. Okay, that's the heart disease bit. Let's go on to the genes bit. Now, each chromosome is the storage unit for thousands of genes. We now know we've got about 25,000 gene pairs, and they make us who we are. Uh, you, they come in 22 matching pairs, one from mum and one from dad. Here they are uh, spread out in what we call a carrier type. And this individual had two copies of the X chromosome, so this was from a female individual. Male has an X and a Y. Genes are made up of four chemical code, known as DNA, of course, uh, adenine, cytidine, guanine, and thymine in the, in the classic Watson and Crick double helix. A gene can be many thousands of these bases long, uh, and the information is a code. It contains... What you need to make a whole human being. The cell reads this and is told what to make, when to make it, and how much to make. When a change occurs in the DNA sequence, the genetic instructions are no longer correct. It's like having a typo in the manual. One base is changed for another, and for example, CAT becomes TAT. It means the cell makes a part that doesn't work. Sometimes bases get missed out or are copied too many times, and the cell makes too few or too many parts. Imagine the manual tells how to make an umbrella. So here's a gene, and the gene says, I'm, when it rains, I'm going to, make, um, going to make some proteins that will protect the cell. Let's make some umbrellas. Okay, so here's a gene that's got a mutation, single base change, and it could be that instead of making lots of umbrellas, it only makes one. Obviously not protective enough. Or it could make an umbrella that doesn't work quite right. It sort of opens and then closes again. Okay? Or it could be that it makes the protein at the wrong time. You can see how, using this simple analogy, that mutations either mean that the gene doesn't make enough protein, doesn't work right well, or is not made in the right time or the right place. Genes make proteins that are important for health. Mutations stop them working. There are three different types of genetic disease. Chromosomal disease, you can think of Down syndrome, where an individual has three entire copies of one of the small chromosomes, chromosome 21. Single gene defects like Huntington's or cystic fibrosis or haemophilia. But what we're interested in, of course, is multifactorial diseases, where there's lots of different genes involved, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, and, and heart disease. Uh, again, I'll just make this point. The clinical consequence of all genetic disorders is modified by environment. Uh, and you could, would think, of course, that hair colour is genetic, but many of us in the room are modifying our, our genotype by using some sort of chemicals. And clearly, 
Tall parents have tall children, but if those children are not fed well, they will be shorter. So all of these different traits, there's both genes and environment. So how can we look at a person's genes? So what we need, what we use, is something called the polymerase chain reaction. And I'll just spend a couple of minutes telling you about this uh, because it's so clever. Uh, what you need is the gene sequence that you're interested in, and from that you design what are called primers. They're, they're homologous to a short region of the DNA, the sequence of that gene, 20, 20 or so uh, bases. You then need an enzyme that will copy DNA, and useful if it's thermostable. You'll, I'll explain why then. You need the, the dinucleotides, buffer, energy, and you need a machine called a thermocycler, because what you're going to do, first of all, is take the DNA here and denature it. So you raise it to 94 degrees, almost boiling, and the two strands fall apart. You then lower the temperature to about 54, and what happens then is these primers come along and find the place in the genome that they are equivalent to, and they form a Watson and Crick double strand. And then this enzyme takes these and copies them using all the, all the nucleotides. So what happens is you start off with template DNA with two copies of the gene. You then have four, eight, 16, 32 copies. You keep on doing this 35 times, and you end up with 68 billion copies of just the fragment of DNA that you're interested in. So you can see why, just with a nuclear chain reaction, this is a polymerase chain reaction. So you then got loads of DNA, absolutely bucket loads. And you can sequence it, you can digest it, you can clone it, you can do all sorts of things. Now, many of you know that the, there's been a lot of fuss in the press about the human genome sequence. This is the press conference. Uh, Clinton, uh, this is Francis Collins, who's the director of um, the National Institute of Health uh, in, in the US. This is a, a venture capitalist called Craig Ventner. Uh, and they were announcing the completion of the first draft of the human genome. Uh, it's 10 years' work, it cost $2.7 billion. And uh, you can see the quote there. Uh, and our glorious leader at the time, never one for missing an opportunity for, hy for hyperbole, said, it's a revolution in medical science. Uh, a breakthrough that opens the way for massive advances in the treatment of cancer and hereditary disease, and that's only the beginning. In this instance, he was right. You can believe him. It has revolutionized our research. Back in the days in the 70s, uh, I won't go into the details, but we could, we could work out one individual, we could in, it, work out a single base change in 20 individuals, it took us a week. Uh, it, we had steam age in the 80s, we could do maybe 200 to 2,000 individuals in a week. Uh, in the 1990s, we were up to 3,000 to 5,000. And for Star Trek fans, we're now in the warp drive where we can do 100,000 a day. And we've got databases, tons of information. There is a bioinformatic gold mine out there. We can now capture DNA from the whole genome in one experiment. Okay, so what's a SNP? SNP stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. It means one base in the DNA is changed, Polymorphism is from Greek, it means many shapes. So it means a different in DNA sequence found commonly in the population, by we define it as more than 1% of people. So here's a sequence, it's there, and then in, the other, in another individual, there's an A instead of a T. Now clearly, if it occurs in the coding region of the gene, it's going to affect the number of umbrellas. Most of them occur outside the gene and are of unknown or of no effect, but we can still use them as genetic markers. And they're all given a unique ID. It's called an RS number. So a SNP would be called RS number 237. Uh, and we're all getting very used to recognizing uh, seven or eight number, numbers and keeping them in our heads. 
How do we choose the genes to study? Well, clearly, because of what we know about the pathology, we can think of genes involved in lipid metabolism, clotting, hypertension, uh, and we can start looking at these. And these were very easy studies to set up, but most of them were underpowered. There were too many, because we were limited by the technology. We could look at, it took us months to look at 200 patients and 200 controls, uh, and many of the results uh, didn't, uh, didn't stand up to the test of time. What we need is a hypothesis-free approach, and with the technology we can now do this. So what we do is we take, say, 2,000 cases and with heart disease, 2,000 controls, and companies now make gene chip devices which have 300,000 or a million of these SNPs spread throughout the entire genome. We can cover the entire genome with one little chip like that. So what we do is, for each of these SNPs, we look to see if the frequency is different in the cases in the controls. If the frequency of this SNP, this allele, this base change, is higher in the cases than the controls, significantly, then we'd say, ah, this gene is marking, this SNP is marking a gene that increases your risk of, of developing heart disease. Now, of course, if you've got a million SNPs, you have done a lot of contrasts, and many of these will be statistically significantly different by chance alone. So what you have to do is set a very low p-value as your threshold, and what you have to do, more importantly, is to replicate it in a second study. And that's what people have been beavering away doing for many years now. And if you look on this website uh, in the middle of last year, there were more than 237 traits that had been mapped to the human genome, uh, and they're for all sorts of things. Some of them are very interesting, and some of them are really weird and wonderful. It's amazing what you can do with genetics. You can find the gene causing restless leg syndrome. But some of these, of course, are very important genes, and we want to know about them. The way the data is presented is in what's called a Manhattan plot. You present it along the X chromosome here as the chromosomes, and up here, in fact, it's the log minus the log of the p-value. So what you want is to find lots of different p-values that are statistically significant being associated with your trait. In 2007, there were three GWAS studies, genome-wide association studies for heart disease, published at, at once. All three of them looked like this. There was one hit and one hit only on chromosome 9. So it's not really a Manhattan skyline. It's more of an Oxford skyline. Now, replicated many independent data sets. It was a major breakthrough. What the heck is this gene? It, it wasn't anything we'd ever thought of. It occurs in a gene desert. The nearest genes that code for any proteins we know about are 58,000 bases away, miles away. The common SNPs are, however, strongly associated with risk. And compared to the AA, so people have got two A alleles, if you've got one G allele, your risk is 30% higher, two G alleles, 60% higher. But interestingly, these GG people weren't fatter, they didn't have high cholesterol, they didn't have high blood pressure. We still don't really know what the mechanism of this is. But it, it certainly... I'm going to skip this because we're running out of time. Um, but it certainly looks like it's going to be of, of clinical utility, and you can actually buy it now. You can actually go to, on, online, uh, 23andMe, if you send them $399, uh, they will test you for this, this single SNP, and that's its RS number. Uh, if you go to Decode, they will also do it, uh, and they will just send, send this. Now, is it worth spending $399? Might be, let's see. So we looked, went back to Northwick Park, and we found exactly the same results. Compared to the AA group, the, if you had one G allele, your risk was 38% higher, two 
G alleles, it was about 60% higher. This is adjusted for age, cholesterol, triglycerides, BMI. Uh, it certainly looks like it's working well. So the question is, is it going to add over and above the Framingham score, what I showed you earlier? So we went back to Norfolk Park Men and we looked at it and we got a 3% improvement. That curve was shifted slightly to the right, but they still overlapped. It wasn't significantly better. The two, when we, when we uh, did tests, that wasn't better than the other. So we're getting there, but one single SNP is not enough. Just as you wouldn't predict an individual's risk by simply measuring cholesterol. You'd put them all together. Simply looking at one gene won't do it. It's because heart disease is multifactorial. You've got to have lots of different genes. So here's the chromosome 9 SNP. Uh, and we were very quickly able to find, uh, by, by looking at data, a whole bunch of others. Uh, and then earlier, about a year ago now, a whole bunch of others were found. We are now doing GWAS by combining data in 100,000 individuals. Uh, and it gives you the power to find very small effects. So we now have more than 50 heart disease risk genes. The alleles are common, but they're all having this modest effect. They're increasing your risk by 10%. 20%. The chromosome 9 one is the biggest one. That's why we're able to find it first. So what are we going to do? Well, what we want to do is put them all together. We want to need to combine them in what we would call a gene score. So we put together an, a number of genes involved in lipid metabolism, clotting endothelial function. So 13 SNPs in these genes. Seven of these GWAS SNPs, the ones, earlier ones. And we looked at the di frequency distribution. Now, we've simply used uh, an additive model. We say at each SNP, if you've got no risk alleles, we'll score you zero. We'll score you one if you're a carrier and two if you've got two. It's a very simple, it assumes equal and additive effects. We can do much better than that, but this is a, a simple first go. Uh, and we went back to look at the Northwick Park men. This is the distribution in Northwick Park. This is the distribution in UK Caucasian individuals. Median number is 15. And what you can see is there's a group of people who've got 12 or fewer. We imagine they should be protected. A group who've got 18 or more, our guess is they're going to have higher risk. How does it actually work out? This is how it looks. It looks just what we wanted. So compared to this group in the middle here, who've got average risk, we can identify that these people who are in the lower, the lower three-tenths of the risk, they're protected. Their average risk is about half of this group. And this group here, in the top three-tenths, their risk is almost two, two and a half. Just to put that in context, the, a risk of two is about what smoking, lifetime risk of smoking uh, is. If you smoke, it roughly doubles your risk. So what we can do with this score is identify men, maybe 20% of men, who have a genetic risk as high as if they were smoking. We all know doctors try to stop you smoking, so this really just puts this into context. So, can we go home? Are we all done? No. The heritability estimates of heart disease are 45 to 50%. So roughly half of the causes of heart disease are genetic, and roughly half of them are environmental, which is pretty much what we'd expect. So here's a pie chart, half environment. We have maybe found 10% of the genetic cause of heart disease uh, with the SNPs we're looking at. So the problem we've got is we've only found this bit. We've still got to find all that lot. There's a number of possible reasons uh, why I won't go through them in, in great detail, but we've still got a lot to learn. Can we find more by sequencing an individual's genome? Now, you may remember the first genome cost, how much was it? 2.7 billion. Oh, it's got a lot cheaper. 
You can now sequence a whole genome for an individual for $5,000. You could sequence just the part that codes for proteins for about $1,000. You could just take these 40 genes that I've been talking about, and you could probably get them sequenced for $500. This sounds like good value. This sounds like it really, really would be useful. Uh, now, the problem is the bioinformatics. We are drowning in data, and we don't know what to do with it. One of the projects I'm working with uh, is funded by the Wellcome Trust, uh, and it's called the UK 10,000 Genomes Project, and they're doing just that. They're finding the genome, they're sequencing the entire genome of about 6,000 individuals, and just the exomes, the part that codes for proteins, in about 4,000. And we're providing samples from people with this disease, FH, this uh, inherited high cholesterol disease. Here's results for the first 22 of these samples. Each part, each coding part, is covered more than 74 times. We get 30 million bits of, of DNA information. This is what's startling. So for every patient, and for everybody in this room as well, we get about 42,000 SNPs. And about 1,100 of them have never been seen before. They aren't in any of the databases. They're completely novel. And we could use bioinformatics and predict that about 350 of them are likely to affect the protein, and 10 of them are likely to make the protein shorter than it should be, to truncate it. So we could guess that each individual, everyone in the room, has got about 350 variants that are going to affect the protein. This is why you shouldn't marry your cousin, because it's very likely that, you will be, that any children will have two copies of this one of these genes, and that really could affect disease. So we're in the needle in the haystack business, and it's a big challenge. So yes, we can do it technically, we can't actually analyze the data yet. So these are the criteria that I set out over for in the beginning, criteria for a useful heart disease test. Um, I'm quite certain that with several genes, we're gonna get there. We certainly are not taking interactions into account. I told you the model is additive, work to do. Uh, I hope I persuaded you that we do have accurate and reproducible risk estimates, but almost all the studies have so far been in white, Caucasian, mid, middle-class-aged men. And we don't know anything about women, and we certainly don't know anything about different ethnic groups. And then what we don't have, maybe I'll have to skip this. I've got five minutes. Okay, let me just explain to you about the psychological impact. What, what's the concern? The concern is that if about what we call genetic fatalism or false reassurance. There are, of course, issues of, of confidentiality, but let, let's not worry about those right now. So this is a cartoon illustrating this, and, and here's Frida and here's Fanny. They've just been given their genetic test results. They've gone home. They've uh, lit, lit, lit up cigarettes. They're, they're drinking martinis. And Frida says, I haven't got the genes, so it's fine for me to smoke. And Fanny says, I've got the genes, so I guess I'm doomed anyway. So all our technology is to no avail. And there was a lot of concern about both of these aspects. Uh, and it really seems, now we've got more data, that this is unjustified. Studies actually suggest that DNA risk information doesn't increase fatalism, and it actually may motivate people to change behavior, to actually take their medication, things like this. So I think this is an issue that, that probably we don't need to worry about yet. So, heart disease risk test. I think it is possible. We need to use several genes. It's got to be based on good data, and currently there are some gaps in that. Don't bother buying it over the internet because without, use, without having the information about your other risk factors, it's not valuable. 
Uh, it will help us to risk stratify those two men that I, that I talked about. And the idea would be that when you, before you come for a clinic, we would ask you to send us a saliva sample through the post. We can then test it. We can test 20 SNPs, 40 SNPs, 1,000 SNPs. And we would then present you this, your risk information, your 10-year risk information, based both on your classical risk factors and your genetic risk factors. And then we'd work with you to try to reduce your overall risk. We still, I think, need to pilot how best to present the data for maximum understanding. So yes, heart disease DNA testing is ready now. And finally, the take-home message is that small differences in your genes make big differences to how you look, but also to your health. And Audrey, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a tremendous talk. We have five minutes for question. Would anybody like to raise on? Yeah. Yeah, the microphone's coming this way. From behind you. Hi, um, thanks for a really interesting talk. Uh, I was just wondering, do you think doctors are well equipped at the moment to give that information? Not in the slightest, I'm afraid. Uh, we, I know of a, a number of, of, of colleagues in the medical school. People are doing, having the tests. They're getting 23 you know, reams of information. They're going to their, 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 their cardiologist and saying, look, I've got this and that and the other. I've got this chromosome 9 SNP. And... It's a bit, it, one of my jobs is to educate doctors. Um, we need to be doing con continued professional development so they know about, about this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, as always, it's, it's about uh, the balance between hype, facts and fiction. In other words, uh, w to what extent is this information clinically useful? I mean, I think it is, but 23andMe and Deco don't present it to you in a way that you can understand or a way that the, the, the doctor can. I can. But that's a bit different, isn't it? So these are the sorts of things that we, we need to be doing. We had two final questions. One at the more back. Yeah, back, back there. Um, excuse my voice, it's gone a bit. Um, I'm afraid I missed the first few minutes of your lecture, so you may have covered this. This is anecdotal, but all my family, for as, as far back as medical records go, have suffered from only one thing, which is high cholesterol, no high blood pressure, mm -hmm. no yeah. cancer or anything. Yeah. And it's always scared me out of my wits that that might transfer over to cancer, but nobody's ever had no. cancer. We don't smoke, no. we no. don't eat animals, no. and we, we don't drink. So, Are you taking a statin? I don't want to take a statin because um, somebody I knew, one of the teachers from, uh, I think it was University School, college school, a maths teacher, took statins for a while and then he threw himself under a train. It struck me that I stood more okay. chance away well, from the railway lines. One of, this, one of the things which I just touched on very briefly is this inherited disease called familial hypercholesterolemia. High cholesterol runs through families. I don't know, but it sounds like that's what's happening in your family. It's a, single, it's a mutation in a single gene. It knocks out this gene, and it prevents you removing cholesterol from the blood. So it, it, you have high cholesterol and early atherosclerosis. People who've got this disease have maybe tenfold higher risk of, of early heart disease. And if we find them and give them a statin, that risk reduces to the same as the general population. We have shown that these individuals, uh, the FH, people with FH, don't have a high risk of cancer. And when they're treated with statin, they actually are 
if you like, paradoxically, they're actually having less cancer than the general population because we tell them not to smoke and they don't smoke. So they're not dying of lung cancer and other cancers. Statins are, in general, remarkably safe. We're very lucky to have such a, a powerful and such a, a safe drug. There are some side effects, there are some muscle pains, um, but I, I, my recommendation to you is, is that you, you do get a, a, you ask your GP for a referral to a lipid clinic, we've got a very good lipid clinic at UCL, uh, and get a proper diagnosis, uh, and then really should, you should consider taking a statin. Um, I'm you know what, I think we better stop. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. But okay, let's, let's I think that's actually all we have time for today. Yes, so thank we'll you. Quite a day. Join me in thanking Professor Humphreys for a thank great you. lecture.